Hi, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Mark Ruffalo. Mark earned his MSW with a specialization in mental health from the University of Pittsburgh. He completed additional training in psychoanalytic psychotherapy and holds a doctorate degree in psychoanalytic studies. Mark is currently a psychotherapist in private practice in Tampa, Florida, and serves as instructor of psychiatry at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine and adjunct instructor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine. He has broad clinical experience in the psychoanalytic treatment of mood disorders, personality disorders, and psychosomatic illness, and has a particular interest in the psychotherapy of schizophrenia. I sat down with Mark to discuss psychosis and psychotic disorders. While it's common in everyday life to interact with someone experiencing anxiety or depression, psychotic disorders are much less common. It was interesting to hear some detailed examples of how these types of conditions present in actual patients. One thing I noticed right away about Mark is that he has a great appreciation for the history of psychiatry. He emphasized the importance of being open and honest about the historical problems found in the treatment of psychotic disorders. Consequently, I'm convinced that just because a field of medicine engaged in questionable practices at one point in history does not mean that the foundational philosophy is wrong or that a commitment to change can't pave new roads based on scientific evidence. Also, perspectives on specific disorders can be fluid. And sometimes the first step in creating coherent evidence-based classifications involves speculation based on clinical experience. If you're curious about one of the most intense psychological disorders, this episode is for you. Enjoy. Okay, today I am here with Mark Ruffalo. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Great. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about a lot of different topics. We're going to be talking about uh, primarily uh, psychosis and uh, psychotic disorders. We're going to be talking a little bit about schizophrenia, as that's one of the more popular psychotic disorders. We're going to be talking about uh, a little bit about the history of 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 treatment of these types of conditions. Uh, so I guess. We, we might as well start by giving the audience an overview of, of psychosis. What are some of the features uh, associated with uh, psychotic disorders? Yeah, so, you know, psychotic disorders um, are uh, historically considered to be amongst the most severe of the psychiatric conditions. Um, the term psychosis is generally defined as a type of condition in which the patient experiences some break with reality or break from reality. That's why sometimes you hear the term psychotic break used. Right. Uh, the term is uh, in contrast to an older uh, sort of out of date term uh, 
neurosis um, in the classic sort of psychoanalytic uh, lingua, uh, lingo, excuse me. So neurotic disorders, uh, we might sort of uh, define these as uh, uh, mood uh, disorders and anxiety disorders today. And, uh, and these were differentiated classically from psychotic disorders, which involved some disturbance in the patient's ability to think clearly. And, um, and often in these disorders, there are perceptual abnormalities, including hallucinations, uh, delusions, um, uh, and uh, some other symptoms, which we'll probably get to. So, um, but, uh, but psychosis um, is not a, 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 um, a diagnosis in and of itself. Psychosis is a term that refers to a syndrome. Um, so when we say that someone is experiencing a psychosis, uh, it could be the result of a plethora of different types of uh, disease processes, medical disease processes, uh, or uh, psychiatric uh, disorders. So psychosis, in fact, really is just the term for a syndrome. It doesn't really tell us much about the nature or the cause of, of the problem etiologically. Now, I'm under the impression that that you can actually get these, you know, uh, bouts of psychosis from from dr uh, drug use, but then th it could also be uh, something that is potentially genetic. Uh, can you can you are there are there two different versions where like is there something different between the drug induced psychosis versus versus someone that has had uh, that that is diagnosed with schizophrenia? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And, you know, we, we see drug-induced psychoses all the time. I used to work in the emergency department. Um, and if, if someone came, you know, in under the influence of methamphetamine, for instance, or if they had done a lot of cocaine uh, or other stimulant drugs, which, uh, which um, target or, or work on dopamine, which is implicated in some way in, in psychosis, um, uh, then, uh, then you can certainly see psychosis occur secondary to drug intoxication. Um, um, individuals with psychotic disorders, however, uh, can and, and do become psychotic or experience symptoms of psychosis independent of, of drug use or intoxication. Now, sometimes they can use drugs which can worsen the symptoms or perhaps trigger the onset of the symptoms. Um, uh, but, uh, but we're really talking in, in, in some respect, at least about two very different, uh, phenomena, uh, uh, a drug induced psychosis, which generally has a, a good prognosis. The person comes down off of the drug, uh, may be started on a neuroleptic medicine for a short period of time, and then they clear in short order and psychotic disorders, uh, uh, tend to be a longer term. Uh, conditions. That's not always the case. Uh, we can talk about some of the different types of, of psychotic disorders, but uh, uh, but but that's sort of the difference in a in a nutshell. So let's just jump right into schizophrenia, which is uh, I, probably the most popular, the most well known psychotic disorder. Uh, you mentioned that uh, some illicit drugs that act on dopamine can create the, these breaks from reality. Um, I would imagine that that schizophrenia you can you get these without the drugs. Um, could you talk a little bit about a little bit more about uh, dopamine and the structural areas that are associated 
with schizophrenia in the brain? Have we identified the the different parts of the brain that are uh, that are different from an average person? Yeah. So um, so this is a an area that um, uh, is uh, is still really being worked out in the scientific uh, world and in the scientific literature. Um, we, we do know that there are some changes in the brains of individuals who have been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is the classic psychotic disorder. Uh, the term uh, comes from Eugen Bleuler, uh, who wrote a book in 1911 called Dementia Praecox, and he, he sort of uh, gave the term schizophrenia to denote this illness. Dementia praecox, just as an aside, sort of was uh, an earlier idea that that uh, literally meant early dementia, and and Bleuler and and some of uh, his followers realized that well, this is really not the same as a dementing illness like Alzheimer's disease. It's something different. Schizophrenia, I believe, comes from Greek for split mind, and there's a lot of confusion around the term because a lot of people associate it with multiple personality disorder or right. what's now called dissociative identity disorder. But um, uh, but but that's not uh, th 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 those are two very very different uh, types of conditions. But so you know in terms of um, of organic uh, theories of of schizophrenia, the dopamine hypothesis uh, has been a recurrent um, somatogenic theory or hypothesis, meaning biological theory of schizophrenia in the 20th century and into the 21st century. Um, uh, what we've learned in the past 50 years is that schizophrenia is much more complicated than dopamine, uh, which is a neurotransmitter. It's a chemical that we all have in our brains. The antipsychotic agents, the drugs that are used to treat schizophrenia, target primarily the dopamine system, and they tend to work uh, for many patients. They, generally speaking, I don't think we can consider these drugs a cure of the illness, but they work on dopamine. And, uh, and for this reason and some other reasons, there is a good belief that schizophrenia has something to do with the dopaminergic system. Interestingly, Parkinson's disease, which is a neurological disease, also has something to do with dopamine. In fact, uh, in Parkinson's disease, there is in essence a depletion of, of dopamine and the treatment for Parkinson's disease is a drug called levodopa or L-dopa. What they learned many years ago was that if you gave a Parkinson's patient too much levodopa, then they would begin to hallucinate and they would become psychotic, very similar wow. to what you would see in schizophrenia. So, so sort of with that information in mind, there was this sort of idea, well, there must be something to this idea of dopamine. We now know, you know, 50 years later about that, that dopamine is only part of, of the equation in, in schizophrenia. This simple sort of dopamine hypothesis is, is, is outdated. Uh, but but certainly we cannot uh, ignore the uh, the uh, the evidence for the uh, uh, the implication of dopamine in, in psychotic disorder. In terms of you know what you see in terms of the neurological findings, probably one of the most robust findings is ventricular enlargement. That's an enlargement of the ventricles in the brain, and roughly, at least to my understanding, maybe fifty percent of schizophrenia patients demonstrate this finding. Um, there's some confusion as to whether uh, this uh, is, well, it's certainly not diagnostic of schizophrenia, ventricular enlargement occurs in other medical syndromes. Um, and, and then there's the question, which is really sort of a philosophical question, uh, what we seeing when we look at the brains of schizophrenia patients, are we seeing the cause of the disease or are we seeing the effect of the disease? 
Right. Um, and this is a very difficult question to, to answer. And, and I think that a lot of the excitement in neuroscience really fails to address this question, right? Are we seeing in the in the neuroscience literature and the in the in, in the the brain scans, for instance, are we seeing the mere consequence of a psychological process as opposed to um, uh, a, a a more top down neurological disease? And and that's still being worked out and and trying to be understood. So so you see mm -hmm. ventricular enlargement and then. And then there's also, you know, evidence for uh, for for uh, changes in both white and gray matter, um, and changes in the prefrontal and, and medial uh, 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 cortex of, of the brain. So let's go back uh, to uh, to to early views on schizophrenia. Uh, in my in the little bit of research I did, it kind of emphasizes this sort of pre. Uh, pre-psychoactive med medicine versus post. It seems like there are a lot of changes uh, uh, upon my, my uh, small amount of research. Um, could you just paint the picture of, of mental health professionals and how schizophrenia was ca categorized uh, before these psychoactive drugs came around? Yeah, so uh, that's a really wonderful question. I, and I think it's so important to know a little bit about the history, because I think when we know history, we are just better informed in terms of how we, we look at patients and their problems today. A lot of what we believe today has been theorized many years ago before by someone else. So uh, in essence, when you look at the history of psychiatry, there's a couple of major figures that stand out when it comes to schizophrenia. The first is Emil Kreplin who was kind of considered the father of modern scientific psychiatry. And, and Kreplin, uh, who uh, was, uh, was German, uh, believed that schizophrenia was fundamentally a, a biological disease. He didn't really have much uh, faith in the idea of psychotherapeutic treatment for schizophrenia um, and adopted a pretty hard-lined biological stance on schizophrenia, in, in essence, uh, arguing that there's really no point to trying to make sense of the symptoms, that the patient has a brain disease, and uh, in time, uh, uh, we, we will more fully understand the, the, uh, the underlying sort of neuropathology. Then along comes Eugen Bleuler, who in 1911 writes Dementia Precox, and Bleuler adopted a more sort of uh, biopsychosocial model of schizophrenia, uh, leaving the door open to psychological etiology. And you see this also in the early work of Adolf Meyer, who was the first psychiatrist in chief at Johns Hopkins Hospital, who argued that perhaps in some cases, a psychological cause uh, uh, could be identified in patients who would go on to develop schizophrenia. In the middle 20th century, we had the really the heyday of psychoanalysis in the United States. And many of the analysts who were writing during that era, including Frieda Fromm-Reichman and Harry Stack Sullivan, argued that the etiology of schizophrenia, that the cause of schizophrenia was chiefly psychological and placed a lot of blame, at least Fromm-Reichman did, on the, on the parents of the schizophrenic patient, including the mother. And, and her sort of ideas uh, came to be known as sort of the theory of the schizophrenogenic mother. Uh, this uh, idea that the mother of the patient is the cause of schizophrenia has long been discarded. It's done a lot of harm, I think, to families and to parents. Um, uh, you know, in the sort of the latter half of the 20th century, you have theorists like Silvano Arietti, who was one of my 
uh, major uh, influences who uh, really um, argued that a pluralistic approach to the disorder is necessary. Um, a, a, a sort of biopsychosocial approach is going to be most helpful, taking into account uh, structural and neurological uh, causes or uh, at least correlates of the disorder, the early environment of the patient, uh, including the family dynamic and the experiences of the patient through uh, their uh, childhood and adolescence. Um, and then uh, sociological or social factors, looking at how these might uh, contribute to the onset of schizophrenia. One finding that you may find interesting as a social psychologist is that schizophrenia tends to occur more commonly in urban areas than in rural areas. Um, and, um, and, and so there's a sort of a social component here as well. Uh, well and, and also, I mean, I believe one of the interesting tidbits that I remember uh, was that uh, schizophrenia is one of the, or these related disorders, psychotic disorders are uh, ones, are, are, are seen across all types of cultures globally, or at least it's more likely than other types of disorders to be found in all cultures. Is that is that the case? Yeah. I mean, when you look at the prevalence of schizophrenia as as the major psychotic disorder across the globe, it's pretty consistent. It's about one percent across the globe found in every culture on Earth. Um, and, um, uh, well, and, 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 and sorry to interrupt, but it's 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 um it's interesting that someone would would uh would would push a a psychological cause uh when you see it so prevalently at the global level it kind of it almost implies like there's something about being human that can go mm -hmm. wrong to to create this you push you down this path yeah yeah i i i agree with that to an extent right i mean you, you you've got to you know i think with that knowledge in hand, you have to, you know, you have to adjust your theory and your model to, to, uh, uh, you know, to, to make some sense of this fact that it is seen everywhere. Um, and it's certainly not to discount the psychological factors, but, uh, uh, but to try to incorporate them perhaps into a broader uh, theory or hypothesis as to what's going on with the schizophrenia patient. Yeah. Now, uh, most, most people probably have never, um, interacted with someone that is suffering from schizophrenia or, or a psychotic disorder um you've had a lot of intimate experience dealing with with serious cases uh what is something that uh that you've learned uh from dealing with these patients that like that you that the average person wouldn't know or would be mistaken to assume from either, you know, watching a film or maybe even reading articles about somebody with schizophrenia? Yeah, um, I, I think um, I think the thing that stands out most in my mind is that even in the sickest of patients, even in the patients with the most severe and the, and the most grave uh, disease, there's a part of the patient that remains healthy. There's a part of the patient that's able to engage with you, say on neutral subjects. When I was when I was uh, completing my internship at uh, the University of Pittsburgh, I was one of my first days on the psychotic disorders unit, and the psychiatrist, who was an older fellow, um, uh, he said, "You know, Mark, one of the best things that you can do while you're here on the unit is to make sure you check the sports scores." Uh, 
uh, before you come in in the morning because the patients like to watch the Pirates and they like to watch the Steelers. And, uh, and, and they'll talk about that stuff with you, right? They may believe that the CIA has implanted a microchip in their brain and is monitoring their every thought, but you sure as hell better believe that they know that Ben, ben Roethlisberger threw three touchdowns yesterday against the New England Patriots. Um, so I think there's this misconception that if the patient has schizophrenia, they are totally lost, that they are completely in their own world and they have no, uh, they have no contact with the rest of the world. Now, I think it's probably true that in a very small percentage of patients, what Bluer would have called catastrophic schizophrenia, which in involves a, a complete degradation of the personality, that that's probably true in, in those patients. They, they really are closed off from, from everything. Uh, but uh, but that is uh, by far the exception, not the rule, that, that most patients uh, uh, can engage quite well uh, and quite normally on a range of subjects. Um, and um, and I think that's the, that's the part of the patient when you're working with them in psychotherapy or when you're treating them pharmacologically that you have to get in touch with. You can't just sit there and talk to them about their symptoms all the time. You're going to get nowhere. You have right. to you have to engage with them on the areas of life in which they are capable of engaging and engaging normally, and uh, so I, I would say that that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions. Okay, so we're definitely going to circle back to talk more about the the history of of the of treating uh, of treating psychotic disorders, but I, I did want to ask you one thing uh, on this. Uh, this line of the internal experience of schizophrenics and, and those with psychotic disorders, which is are individuals with schizophrenia self-aware of their hallucinations? In other words, for the listeners, you know, are they able to cognitively say that this is a hallucination or can they be taught that this is a this is a hallucination uh, yeah. or is it the case that it's just all sort of muddled up and 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 that's not really a, a target yeah that that's a that's a great question that really you know attempts to uh, get into the inner world of the patient and and understand what the patient is really experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis and the answer varies very widely some patients of mine are able to say that when they hear voices out in the hallway of people talking about them or talking uh, uh, to them, that they're aware at some level that that's a product of their own mind and that's a hallucination. Um, some people have voices that um, uh, that, that really, um, uh, it's very difficult to discern whether this is a, uh, a hallucinatory experience or, or, or it's occurring in outside you know, reality. Um, uh, so, so there's really great, uh, great variability on, on this uh, topic. Over time, I think with good psychotherapy, um, uh, the patient can be taught um, more or less uh, to be able to identify uh, what, is, uh, what is a hallucinatory experience versus what is something happening in the external reality. Now this takes time, sometimes years in treatment and therapy. Um, uh, but it, it can be done. It, not every patient is capable of, 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 of it. Um, uh, and, and, and very often in the very early stages of the disease, the patient really lacks any ability 
to be self-aware. Um, uh, Arietta used to write about um, a concept that he termed psychotic insight. And it's not what you might imagine, you know, when we talk about insight and psychotherapy or, right, it's, it's usually implies that the patient has come to some understanding as to why they have symptoms and, and now they're able to do something about them. Right. If I if I get depressed after a breakup, well, maybe that has something to do with my early relationships, failed early relationships with a parent or something. Right. The patient has developed insight. But when Arietti was talking about psychotic insight, he's he's talking about how in the early stages of the disease, the uh, of schizophrenia, the patient succeeds at putting it all together, meaning if they start hearing a voice. They develop psychotic insight and they say, well, now it makes sense. The White House is actually, I, I have a, a direct line to the White House and that's why I'm hearing these voices, right? So that's the, the idea of psychotic insight. Um, uh, so, so in the early stages of the process, uh, of, of the disease process, the, the patient usually isn't able to say, uh, to, to, to be self-aware enough to say that these are hallucinations. That can come in time. Uh, as the patient, um, uh, in in essence, gets used to having the disease, with treatment, with medication therapy, and and the like. So a lot of patients that I see who I've been working with for years might still experience hallucinations, but they're able to say, when, for instance, they're out in public and they might hear someone talking negatively about them, they're able to say, well, I know that that person really didn't say that. That was a figment of my mind. And they've, they've learned to be able to recognize that as uh, as as a symptom of, of their condition. Yeah, it, it seems uh, I, I thought of a, a few things when you were sort of explaining this process. I mean, it sounds a, a little bit like, I mean, it reminds me of how you would try to uh, use therapy to treat somebody with social anxiety or a phobia, which is these intrusive thoughts come in and they have to be dealt with, they have to be filtered and that most people don't have the filter to begin with. You have to train, train up the filter. Yes. Um, the, uh, so I, I, I want, I'm, I'm very interested in hearing more about uh, the history of, of, of treating yeah. I know that's that's particularly interesting to you as well. Um, I believe it was the '50s when we first started seeing the the antipsychotic drugs starting to become used. Uh, how did that? How did that? Or what were the impacts of of the advent of those drugs? Yeah, so I believe it was 1952 when chlorpromazine, or uh, the brand name for that drug was Thorazine came on the market. Uh, it was discovered serendipitously by accident, as many of the early discoveries in psychopharmacology were. Uh, um, it was a drug that uh, initially had a very stony or muted reception here in the United States because a lot of psychiatrists didn't uh, subscribe to biological theories of schizophrenia. They were psychoanalysts and they didn't really want anything at all to do with medicine. So whereas you saw chlorpromazine take off in Europe and some other places around the world, in the United States, there was a lot of hesitation amongst academic psychiatrists to tinker with the brain uh, because what was really going on was a psychodynamic problem, right? So uh, in essence, the, the, uh, the pharma companies uh, lobbied state governments to have the governments try out Thorazine and the related drugs on their state hospital patients and, uh, and lo and behold, they found that the drug worked actually rather dramatically. 
And in the 50s and in the 60s, you have a period of what, what's known as deinstitutionalization. We used to have massive state hospitals in this country. We still have state hospitals, but they're operating at much lower capacity. We had at one point close to 600,000, over a half million people in state hospitals in this country. Um, and by the early 70s, after this, the discovery of the, of the first neuroleptic drugs, that number was closer to 200,000. And right now, I think there's approximately 34,000 state hospital beds in the U.S. So a great, great reduction attributable to many different uh, causes. But one of the major causes was the discovery of the, of the neuroleptic drugs, which really, for the first time in history, allowed patients with the most severe forms of psychotic disorder to be able to live in the community again. These drugs are not cures by any means. Some patients go on to do well with them, uh, but they do, um, uh, they do uh, uh, tend to work at least to some degree and, uh, and, um, and, and many patients are helped by them. So it's an interesting um, uh, shift, you know. So, so because the drugs seem to work, the drugs do work, a shift in the theory of schizophrenia um, um, uh, ensued from a primarily psychological theory to a more biological theory. And we still have sort of a, a, a psychiatry that is dominated by, by biological theories of schizophrenia. I think the pendulum is swinging back toward a more biopsychosocial approach in the past decade or so, but much of the research and much of the funding on schizophrenia today is, is, a purely, uh, is from a purely sort of biological perspective. Uh, now you you mentioned that the that the drugs worked, and I know from having casual conversations about about uh, mental institutions in the fifties and 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 how we used psychoactive medication, you know the the average person kind of goes, you know, oh, it was, it was terrible back then, and I know I know there were at, at some point there there were this idea of lobotomy was thrown around as as a treatment. Um, uh, are these criticisms fair in the sense of, you know, you said that the, that Thorazine worked, does work mean, you know, uh, making the hallucinations go away, but then there's no quality of life or did it, did it work in the, in a, in a much better sense and in, in terms of it allowed people to flourish? Yeah, I think many of the criticisms are fair. I think psychiatry has a pretty dark history. When you think about lobotomy, you think about um, uh, some of the other uh, types of treatments that were sometimes done not to treat disease, but to punish unruly patients. I mean, I think that psychiatry sort of has to own up to some of this um, in the, the early 20th century to the mid 20th century. You know, what, what does it mean when we say an antipsychotic drug works? That's a great question, right? I mean, um, so the drugs seem to be quite effective for the positive symptoms of psychotic illness. What I mean by that are the hallucinations. So hallucinations involve sensory misperceptions, hearing something that's not there, seeing something that's not there, smelling something, tasting something, or feeling something on your body that's not real, that's not really there in, in, in reality. Um, and they can also, the, the medications can also be quite effective at dealing with delusional ideations. A delusion is a fixed false belief that is held against all evidence to the contrary. Um, the mafia is tapping my phone. Um, 
the uh, Mexican drug cartel is hiding uh, drugs in the walls of my apartment. Um, aliens landed in my apartment building last night and replaced my heart with a glad trash bag, right? So, um, so, so these are examples of delusions. Um, uh, and, and the medicines more or less tend to be effective for dealing with the positive symptoms, what are called the positive symptoms, those that are added on, quote unquote, to ordinary human experience, hallucinations and delusions. They don't always work for hallucinations and delusions, but they're most effective for those symptoms. When it comes to the negative symptoms, blunting of affect, this is a, a common symptom in, in psychotic illness where the patient really is unable to express much or demonstrate much emotion. There's a sense that part of the personality of the patient has been lost. They start to withdraw socially. They um, have difficulties in interpersonal relationships. The drugs, frankly, are not very effective for these types of symptoms. Um, and this is, I think, where psychotherapy plays an important role, Psycho, uh, psychoeducation, psychotherapy, cognitive remediation, like cognitive enhancement therapy, um, uh, communities for patients with psychotic disorders to help build and establish social skills and social interactive uh, abilities and that sort of thing. So yeah, I've, I've heard this. Good. I've heard this quote that that in many in some cases the drugs can allow talk therapy to be more effective. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, there, there's opinions on you know both sides of this. I I, I tend to agree with with this uh, with this idea, um, um, uh, with with a few exceptions. I mean, I, I think if the patient is on such high doses of neuroleptic medicine. Uh, it can really um, it, it really can lead them to not really be able to engage much at all in the therapy process. They are, in essence, sort of zoned out. And and sometimes people colloquially term this as like zombification if the person's on such a heavy heavy dose of an antipsychotic. Um, but for the most part, if the patient is adequately treated, the dose is right, I think the patient becomes more able to work in a psychotherapy versus if they are, are not treated pharmacologically. But it brings, it brings me to a, another, I think, important point. A lot of people have this idea that the patient has to be on medicine before they enter therapy. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. I, I think it can be helpful. But a lot of patients are much more willing to come talk about their problems than they are to take a drug. And sometimes in time, if you build a trusting uh, uh, relationship with the patient, you develop a good rapport, the therapy can be an avenue toward effective biological treatment too. Um, I hear all the time that therapists in my community and, and probably all over, they won't work with patients with schizophrenia either at all or unless they're on medicine. And I think maybe this is driven by some liability concerns and some other concerns, but uh, but I, I think that uh, that we ought not, uh, you know, have that as a firm a firm rule that the patient has to be on medicine before they come into therapy. And what are some of these? What are the 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 individual goals that you're trying to achieve in a talk therapy setting when working with somebody who's experiencing psychotic breaks? I mean, it seems. I know my gut goes, wow, that's that's surprising, you know, to me that you can uh, that you can use talk therapy 
to address something so dramatic? What What is the process? What are these little steps that you're trying to achieve in this uh, in talk therapy when dealing with psychotic disorders? Yeah, well, it really depends largely on the type of therapy that we're talking about. Cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy has different goals. Cognitive enhancement therapy, which is a cognitive remediation, trying to build uh, skills, uh, social skills and the like is a different type of therapy. But I'm going to talk mainly about psychodynamic therapy, which is what I do and how I'm trained and that sort of thing. So the first goal of a psychodynamic treatment is to establish a relationship with the patient um, that is marked by warmth and basic trust. And in the words of Harry Stack Sullivan, the therapist must provide the patient with a relationship of security beyond which the patient has ever had before. The patient has to feel completely safe with the therapist, completely safe to reveal any thought, any fear, any anxiety, any symptom. And this sounds relatively easy, but when you're working with patients with these types of illnesses, it, it can be difficult. Um, so beyond just the, the therapeutic environment, if you will, um, what are some of the, some of the goals of the treatment? Right? Um, so for me, one of the major goals is to help the patient understand how anxiety serves as a trigger for the symptoms. And very often the patient is able to say this even off the bat, that when I get anxious, when things are happening in my environment, that I can't control, my symptoms worsen. And, and this is something that the empirical research, you know, has shown for, for many years. So understand, helping the patient understand the link between anxiety and their symptoms. Targeting the symptoms with specific techniques. And one technique that, uh, that I find to be help, helpful is helping the patient identify when they enter into what's called the listening attitude. So right before the onset of a hallucination, the patient enters into this very temporary transient emotional state in which they anticipate hearing a voice, for instance. If you can help the patient catch themselves in this listening attitude, this is a term that I borrow from Arietti, Silvano Arietti, who was probably one of the world, the world leader on schizophrenia for many uh, decades. Um, this can help them with the, with the symptoms themselves. Understanding how in psychosis, and this is done sort of in the later stages of the treatment, you certainly don't want to do this early on. The early stages are really based on the, you know, developing a good working relationship with the patient. But later on in treatment, you might actually help the patient to understand what the symptoms may mean. And so in the psychodynamic theory, there's this idea that the patient is actually um, engaging in a process called concretization. And the term it means what it sounds like it means. It means that the patient is taking something abstract and making it concrete and literalizing a metaphor, right? So if the patient has an olfactory hallucination of an odor emanating from his body, a foul odor, that this may indicate that the patient actually feels that they are a foul or a bad person. The patient has concretized this inner belief or this inner um, fear or anxiety. In paranoia, the patient is projecting onto the outside world, the patient's, excuse me, the patient's own hostile or critical attitudes toward the self. 
right? Instead of believing that one is bad and that one should be punished, the patient actually projects onto the outside world this belief and thus feels that people are out to get them. And this is sort of interpreted psychodynamically as a defense mechanism, right? That the symptoms, the classic idea in psychoanalysis is that the symptoms are at once a problem and a solution to a different problem. The, so, the symptoms are a solution to the problem of overwhelming, catastrophic inner anxiety. This is the theory at least, right? And the symptoms develop as a means of mitigating or dealing with that anxiety. And, um, and this is certainly not um, contradicting a biological theory. I think that the biological and the psychological can occur uh, are complementary theories or ways of looking at schizophrenia and psychosis, by the way. But the idea is that the symptoms are serving some purpose. There's some reason why the patient is believing what they're believing. And this is sometimes why I get a little frustrated with some of the more biologically minded people who essentially say, well, the patient's psychotic. There's no point in talking to them. There's no point in trying to make sense of why the patient feels that he doesn't have a left arm anymore or that his heart has been replaced by a uh, by a, a CD-ROM or something, right? But to me, nothing happens by chance. Nothing in the mental world happens by chance. There's always some meaning to be derived. Whether we can actually derive meaning from the symptoms is another, is another question. Sometimes you try for years and you fail and you really can't make any sense of it. But I think the meaning is there. So over time, and this is sort of in the later stages of psychotherapy, the patient might actually be able to say, well, when I feel paranoid, I know that that's just a projection of how I feel about myself. That's actually uh, wow. uh, that's actually my own inner uh, thoughts and my beliefs about myself. So we talk about self-esteem. We talk about how self-esteem was impacted often by early experiences and sometimes trauma uh, and, and the like. So that's sort of psychotherapy from a psychodynamic perspective in a nutshell. Yeah. And it it just listening, listening to you say that it it, it almost makes me feel it makes me feel a lot more empathetic towards people with these conditions because, I mean, in a much less intense way, that's how most people uh, most people have a, a a couple coping mechanisms that aren't ideal. You know, you're you know you're mad at your spouse, and that causes you to maybe perceive some some things they do in a more negative light. You know, it adds a negative lens, and it sounds to me almost like what you're saying is these these uh, beliefs, delusional beliefs, beliefs about the government. Um, are, are uh, I mean, are, are they just a slightly more intense version or, or is it silly for me to compare those, those two? Yeah. You, I mean, you're really getting at the question of, well, are we dealing with a categorical problem or a dimensional problem? And this is, this is a question that has plagued psychiatry and clinical psychology for decades, right? Mm -hmm. Is schizophrenia just on the extreme end of a spectrum, do all of us sort of have some proclivities towards psychosis, but we don't reach the, reach the threshold, right? This is an interesting question. You know, I wrote a piece uh, last year uh, uh, titled Schizophrenia, a Difference of Kind. And I argue that we're actually dealing with a categorical difference, right? So my, my argument in the paper without getting too uh, uh, theoretical is that, you know, all differences in nature are essentially quantitative ones, right? But it's mm -hmm. the difference in the quantity that produces the qualitative or the categorical difference, right? So a normal person may experience mild psychotic symptoms either upon falling asleep or waking up in the morning. These are called hypnopompic or hypnagogic hallucinations. This has happened to me once or twice before. I wake up 
in the morning and for a split second, I hear my voice being called. And then I come fully awake and I realize that there's nobody calling my, my voice. This is a normal experience. I think it occurs roughly in 40 to 50% of the population. But, um, but you know, an anxious person might believe that their boss is talking behind their back. Um, or a jealous spouse may have a fit of paranoid rage, right? My spouse is cheating on me or my spouse is doing X, Y, and Z. But as long as these experiences are quantitatively so minimal that the individual can keep them in check, that is that they don't produce any impairment, then we don't consider these people to have schizophrenia, right? It's only when the quantity of the symptoms reaches a certain level when the symptoms gain the upper hand, creating dysfunction and impairment in the individual's life, as when, uh, as, the, as the psychiatrist Arietti put it, the way of living of the patient expresses itself not in contrast to, but in accordance with the symptoms that the person has schizophrenia. So I think at different quantitative levels, we have such dramatic changes in the experience of the symptoms and their persistence and the degree of impairment that I think it acquires a different, a qualitatively or a categorically different um, nature and is ruled by different mechanisms. So I tend to, tend to argue that schizophrenia is a disease, a categorical disease that differs from, from normality for that mm -hmm. reason. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I, I've heard a, a similar debate when you, you know, when you start getting into addiction. It's, you know, uh, everyone, you know, it's pretty normal to uh, have a few beers every now and then have a glass of wine. That's fundamentally different, fundamentally different from being uh, an alcoholic or, or needing or needing intervention, right? Uh, I've heard, you know, lots of different yes. versions of how you differentiate between uh, needing intervention versus not, um, you know, does it affect your relationships? Does it reflect, re reflect your health, uh, or does it impact your relationships, your health or your job? Uh, and do you pur pursue it in spite of different consequences? But I, I totally agree there, 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 there seems to be some sort of categorical difference, even though that, even though, like you said, the, uh, average people might have delusional beliefs that sort of creep into their, to their everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it, it raises interesting questions about conspiracy theories. And I saw that, you know, you might've wanted to touch on that. That's not an area of expertise for me, but those who are interested should, should look up Joseph Pierre. He's a psychiatrist at UCLA. He does a lot of writing on conspiracy theories yeah, he's and actually uh, he's actually the the next uh, interview I have scheduled is with Joe Pierre. So I was I was I was That's hoping great. that we we didn't get too far into talking about conspiracy theories, uh, but it's so funny that you brought that up. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, so we won't we won't touch on conspiracy theories as interesting as that topic is. But uh, in closing, I I do want to talk about uh, homelessness and people experiencing homelessness. Um, uh, personally, uh, I, I don't feel like calling these populations homeless does them any good. I feel like that's a misnomer. It, uh, I try to push the, the term that they're publicly mentally ill. Um, I know that that's a percentage. It's not all of them. I know that, uh, it's, it's sort of a combination of illness and, and drug use that is going on in these populations. Um, it, it's probably the... Uh, the easiest way for 
an average person to see psychosis with their own two eyes if you've ever seen somebody walking up and down the sidewalk sort of talking to themselves it's that's sort of that type of thing um could you i, I know it's not your um you, you know you're not a, a public policy maker but could you talk a little bit about about what things public policymakers get right and wrong about addressing homelessness and their their symptoms yeah it's such a such an important question um well i mean i i think that one problem one of the major problems is that we don't really have a mental health system in this country we really have a non-system um we have revolving door hospitals where if the patient is hospitalized, they're there for three or four or five days. They might get started on a neuroleptic medicine, their symptoms might improve, but they have no place to live. They have no money. They probably don't go to the pharmacy to fill their prescription. Um, they live on the streets and, um, and, and thus, you know, addressing, uh, uh, addressing this uh, sort of solely as a, a problem of beds, of needing more beds, while I think is well-intentioned, psychiatric beds that is, I think it misses a large, uh, a, a large part of the problem. I think the entire philosophy of treatment has to change. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and, and uh, you, know, I, I, you know, as bad as the state hospitals were, and believe me, from what I know about history, and I teach the history of psychiatry, some of them were absolutely horrid places to live. The idea though, of having a place for the severely mentally ill to live to um, in, in many of these hospitals, you know, from, from years ago, they had uh, patients work the grounds and garden and there were activities that they could engage in. You know, I, I don't know if that's the solution. Some people have proposed, you know, sort of maybe reopening in, in some very um, uh, progressive and different type of way institutions like that. Uh, for folks, because you know we we we've gone from six hundred thousand people in state hospitals now with with severe mental illness to three hundred and fifty thousand in prison prison and another two hundred and fifty thousand homeless on on the streets. Um, so you know I'm not a public policy guy. It's it's not really my area, but um, I think it has to be a multi pronged approach for sure. Yeah, I know uh, Michael Schellenberger, who's running for office in California, was. I think he was a big part of his platform was having to sort of bringing back these state facilities. Um, yeah, I, I it, it is a tough, tough uh, question uh, to answer. I, I don't know if, if you would agree that there's this sort of um, the, the, the voluntary versus involuntary piece is where I, I see a, a sort of disconnect. Um, you know, I, uh, because I live in a downtown area, I frequently interact with uh, the homeless populations. And um, I mean, uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm interacting with the ones that, that are experiencing psychosis. Uh, although what I have learned is that even for some of them that, that are sort of talking to themselves, they can very easily sort of snap into a conversation, uh, some of them, right? Not maybe not all of them, but some of them can go from uh, sort of loudly yelling about the government to, you know, um, uh, buying uh, buying an apple at the grocery store, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. In in terms of that voluntary piece, or uh, you know, do we need to 
sort of have have the expand conservatorship, which is this idea that we we need to take the 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 most mentally ill homeless people and and sort of bring them in and force them into treatment. Um, or do you think that there's a, a way to persuade them? It's a great question. I, I think it's a nuanced topic. Um, I, I, I am, you know, I, I, I believe chiefly in voluntary treatment. With that being said, I, I do think that there is a role and I think there's a role for the state uh, in enforcing treatment on patients who are so ill that they are unable to function and they're unable to recognize their own illness. I, I think a good, so, so uh, having worked inpatient and in the emergency room, you know, that the, the rules or the laws are so stringent nowadays, the person has to be imminently dangerous in order to be admitted to the hospital under an involuntary commitment. That's actually, is, is actually a high bar. In, in California, there is a, um, uh, a, uh, a, 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 not a requirement, um, uh, I, I, I suppose we can say requirement for grave disability. Mm -hmm. A person doesn't have to be suicidal or homicidal. All they need to be is gravely disabled by their mental illness to, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to be admitted to the hospital involuntarily uh, to get restarted with treatment. And I, I think that, that using that model perhaps might be more helpful. The, the suicidal homicidal bar, which really is a byproduct of a lot of litigation and, and sort of civil libertarian thinking when it comes to the mentally ill. Tom Saz was an anti-psychiatrist who had a lot to do with this. People should have the right to be as crazy as, excuse me for using the language, but you know he would argue people have the right to be as crazy as they wanna be as long as they're not harming anybody else, right? And th there's a part of that argument that, that I, that I'm sensitive to. I, I do believe in freedom. I believe in personal freedom. But when the when the organ that is diseased is the very organ that is in is is the organ that we use to make decisions in our own best interest, I think we're dealing with something very different from say a patient who's declining treatment for their cancer or for their cataract. When the very organ, the brain, that, that is diseased that, that is used to make decisions I, I i think we have to we have to take that into consideration i don't think we do a very good job of doing that societally yeah and the and the, and the lack of uh dr drupinski he always when he's ta talking about this topic he'll say um that that lacking insight into what they need is part is a symptom Mm -hmm. Right. And and that yeah. that's sort of what twisted my that's that's what sort of got me thinking a lot of uh, a lot about this topic. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and I think Dr. Pence, Dr. Drew has, has done a lot of good, you know, advocacy work uh, for improving uh, the condition of, of really some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Well, thank you so much for uh, for being on. We've run out of time. Uh, I appreciate uh, you coming on. I know you that you're you're very passionate about uh, about psychiatry, especially the history. I wish we could have uh, gotten a little bit more into uh, this uh, deinstitutionalization, uh, but uh, perhaps perhaps another day. Uh, thank you Absolutely. so much. For, uh, thank you so much for being on, uh, Dr. Mark Ruffalo. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Visit 
drruffalo.com. That's drruffalo.com. Or follow him on Twitter at Mark L. Ruffalo. Be sure to follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me at Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question Why Do We Do That? Mm-hmm.